Um, Acts chapter 26 is going to be our text. Uh, we're actually going to read um, the end of the story up front. Uh, so, uh, spoiler alert, most of you probably know this story anyway, but if you don't, um, it's very fascinating, an awesome, awesome, uh, really, in exchange between uh, two people that you may n- not know and one person that you probably know a little bit about, maybe a lot about. Uh, a very powerful exchange. Um, and also, there's another person in this episode who's just observing. And I have to think that this particular episode, this exchange, uh, changed that man's life um, and impacted the rest of the world um, in a very powerful and dramatic way. Um, So Acts 26, we're going to begin and read verses 24 through 32. And later on, we'll go back and actually read the whole um, chapter together. So a lot to unpack this morning. I can't wait to dig in. Verse 24, uh, now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving, driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. To convince you today that this exchange and this episode may be one of the most important uh, conversations in history. I've got to back up and tell you a, a little bit of the backstory. I think it's important that we know how all these people got in the room together uh, on this afternoon in our 60 or so AD. So we've got to back up a few years. The year would have been AD 57. AD 57, it was springtime, a little bit later in the year than it is right now uh, for us. Uh, it would have been specifically around the festival of Pentecost, or as the Jews called it, Shavuot. Uh, it, was, it was just about to begin, and Jerusalem was starting to fill with masses and masses of people uh, bustling all across the town. Jewish people from nearby and from afar made their annual pilgrimage to celebrate one, this one of the biggest festivals and holidays of the Jewish year. This festival was centered around bringing in sheaves of grain um, from the harvest field. This was really the time of year when the first fruits would have been ripened enough to pick. So this festival was all about bringing in the first fruits, bringing in the sheaves, as we may have sang before, um, to celebrate that God was blessing His people as He had promised. And once again, He would bless them this harvest. And, And the weather was perfect. I imagine, 
on this spring day in AD 57. Mid-70s, probably a lot less rain than we're having right now. Uh, The atmosphere would have been absolutely electric. Um, There would booths would have been set up all across town from the Temple Mount down Main Street and all the side streets of Jerusalem. The aroma of the festival food would have been delicious. The energy would have been contagious. And of course, it wasn't called the land of milk and honey for nothing. Uh, There was lots of milk and lots of cheese and lots of sweets to commemorate the sweet covenant God made with Israel. There was no shortage of reasons to rush to the festival. Uh, Goat and sheep's milk were in everybody's souvenir mugs. Long lines would have been forming around the butter and cheese booths, right? We're already uh, wishing we were there, right? I I hear the cheesecake and the cheese blintzes were to die for um, in these festivals. Uh, There would have been figs and grapes and pomegranates and nuts being sampled and sold in bushes and on platters. Olive presses were set up for everyone, even the kids, to take a turn. Lamb and goat kebabs would have been everybody's go-to choice for lunch. To be sure, be sure to get some hummus to dip that stuff in. It makes it even better. A little bit bitter, but you'll get used to it. There were reenactments and dramatic tellings of all the epic events throughout Israel's history, from Moses to David to the prophets. Even the Romans took advantage of this festival season and would have had chariot races that would have drawn big crowds and there would have been parades with galloping horses and children dancing uh, with their families, trumpets and vibrant music all across town. And of course, the big communal sheep shearing event was always drawing a lot of hype. This festival was always highly anticipated. Just thinking about it makes me want to be there. And there was something for everybody. But over the past few decades, leading up to 57 AD's uh, iteration, the festival and the whole atmosphere around Israel had kind of lost some of its wonder and its luster. Everybody was on edge. Everybody was tense. Over the last few years, festival seasons were just asking for uprisings. Uh, Someone always wanted to cause a scene. Someone always wanted to talk about how they were going to take down Rome. Somebody always wanted to claim they had seen a messianic vision and they were the Messiah of God. And people grew weary as Rome grew irritated, uh, having dealt with Israel for some time now. So many problems and the Jewish people and the religion were just a burden across and over the shoulders of the empire. And rumors began to swirl that Rome had all options on the table about how to deal with them swiftly. Unrest grew from the populace and the Jewish leaders and the Jewish influencers. They weren't ready to join the revolts and the gangs yet. They knew what happened when too much noise was made. If Rome got wind of even the slightest of rebellions and the slightest of uprisings, forests were cut down, logs were hewn, and crosses became the backdrop of the horizon across the mountains of Zion. Pentecost always made everyone think of one specific rebel and one specific crucifixion particularly because it was on Pentecost 25 years prior to 57 AD, that the Jewish leaders were fully convinced that this man's ghost had come back to haunt them. A man that they worked diligently to silence and sentence to die had so spellbound his following that even a month after he had died, they came into the city and they crashed the party into this big festival and they began disrupting everything, preaching that he 
was alive. His followers went from defeated to delusional as they took to the streets proclaiming that he had come back to life. And I mean, come on, right? You know, how could that ever be possible? These men were considered either drunk or crazy. But from that day forward, Judaism just wasn't the same. As many as tens of thousands of its own had defected from, this, to, from Judaism to this new knockoff of Judaism, this sect, what was being called a cult, what was being called the way. And over the next 25 years or so, the way had spread far and wide. In fact, one of the way's biggest proponents had been, had been a prominent member of the Jewish councils. He was a Pharisee. He was a scholar. He once was their biggest asset in trying to stamp out the way, but he actually joined it. Most believed or couldn't believe this actually was possible. They wanted to think that he had lost his mind or was being blackmailed somehow. Someone of his repute and his wisdom couldn't possibly be so fooled. But nonetheless, they considered him dead as he had not been seen for years. Until now. As this festival was getting started and Israel wanted to make Judaism as great as it once had been and instill boldness and passion in their believers' hearts once more, thinking this might finally be the year. And lo and behold, as the festival was getting started, people began to whisper that he was back, accompanied by a very strange foreigner, a Greek who by the looks of it, was a physician of some kind. These two arrived into town on different missions. The former Pharisee had long since dreamt of returning to Jerusalem to see his old friends, but more importantly, to witness to them, to share with them what he had come to believe and know. He knew most would not believe him or receive him warmly, but he just felt compelled to. Everyone told him it's a fool's errand, but he just couldn't shake the feeling that he had to go back. He told a group of men who begged him not to go previously. Now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. His companion, the doctor, he decided to join this man that he just recently uh, began to follow. Uh, His motive was a bit more obscure. He had taken a sabbatical from his practice uh, and had been commissioned, sponsored by a friend, a colleague, uh, to investigate this newfound faith that was spreading across Rome. The doctor himself was already a believer, convinced by the team he had just joined, but he wanted to know more. He wanted to know about how this little cult, this, this, this knockoff of Judaism could have possibly grown so big and won so many hearts. He wanted to know more about the carpenter people were worshiping. He was an intellect, so going from being a physician to a journalist or a historian wasn't too much of a challenge. But the bigger challenge was retracing the steps of the way. So when the opportunity came to go to Judea and being just 20 years after it all began, the doctor was determined to see it all through the eyes of the ones who had lived it. And of course, the Pharisee turned evangelist was none other than the Apostle Paul, And his physician-turned-journalist friend was, of course, Dr. Luke. So they arrive in Jerusalem, A.D. 57, and the text tells us, when we, 
Anytime you see we in Acts, it's because Luke is writing the book. So he's writing about what they were doing. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. That's the church. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, Jesus' brother, and all the elders were present. So we get this uh, note from Luke that they came into town, and Luke was captivated to be in the company. Notice he makes uh, makes it very clear that they were in the company of the brothers uh, of the household of of the disciples, of the brothers of Jesus, of the elders, the original apostles. He was captivated to be in the company of Jesus' brothers and his original followers. And Paul, who takes off to the temple to see his old friends, leaves Luke there, and Luke quickly finds himself in prime position for story time, and he spends the next several weeks just soaking in all the stories they had to tell. Meanwhile, Paul began to preach and implore the crowd that the man named Jesus, who was crucified 25 years before, he was indeed God's Messiah, foretold of in their own Jewish texts. Paul preached, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. He says, Hey guys, I have not, I have not defected from the faith of our fathers. That Christianity, right, it is the natural next step in what we have all been waiting for. The law and the prophets laid down the foundation that Jesus has you know, built His movement has built his church on. Of course, just as the authorities had arrested the apostles for causing a scene, Paul was seized immediately. And this was a bigger deal than the likes of Peter and John who were just simpletons. They were seen as nuisances. But Paul was an offense. He was one of their own. He knew better. He was uh, disgracing his heritage, his education, his wisdom by advocating for this cult, this way, now being belittled and ridiculed and shamed, giving, given the appropriate name, Christianity, after the one who called himself the Christ. The Jewish authorities didn't want to believe it, but they had come to accept it. Paul was the reason why so many of their synagogues all around the empire had cut off communication with headquarters in Jerusalem. The rumors of these synagogues becoming Christian churches first sounded silly, but now they made complete sense. All those recent Gentile applications into the synagogue communities, they had been too good to be true. They weren't converting to Judaism. They were becoming Christians. And these synagogues were being transitioned, being converted themselves to churches as these Jews were convinced that Jesus was their Messiah. Paul had even brought one of the Gentile converts with him. From this point, the religious leaders gained permission from Rome to send their own temple guards and their own emissaries to begin investigating the synagogues. And they, they arrive to these communities who are very unhappy to have these people from, from Jerusalem kind of declaring that Paul was a heretic and that you cannot believe what he taught you. And all of this gets Rome's attention in a very bad way. When Jerusalem explained that they had arrested the one causing all the trouble, Rome gave strict orders. If he's one of your own, take care of him before we have to. And we will if we must. After being imprisoned and kept in waiting for months, he finally stood trial before the new Roman procurator, procurator in town. 
Like Pilate before him, Festus' job was to keep the peace in Judea. And it seemed obvious that the best way to do this was have Paul crucified. But little did he know that Paul was a Roman citizen. Having been born in a Roman province, Roman citizens had rights that those who lived in their colonies did not. Roman citizens had to receive fair, often long, drawn-out trials. And they also had the right to appeal to Rome's higher courts, even the Supreme Court, with a chance to stand in front of Caesar himself. You were better off in the smaller courts, but if you were crazy enough... No one would stop you from appealing to Caesar. And for someone so desperately wanting to share the name of Jesus anywhere, especially Rome, Paul was absolutely bold enough to appeal. So he appealed to Rome and was put in holding once more, this time by the sea in Caesarea. And he wrote a few letters from that prison, one back to Jerusalem, reaching out to Luke, telling Luke that, hey, they're about to ship me off to Rome on a cargo ship, and they're taking passengers who want to get back to the, to the homeland. So if you want to go back, you should, you should head towards Caesarea soon. Luke responded that he was thoroughly investigating, but he would be there before they set sail. Meanwhile, Festus thought all of this was so hilarious and so perplexing at the same time that he was telling his buddies over dinner about it, seeking their advice and their opinions. And one of them was his adjacent, uh, was his, uh, adjacent politician, the Galilean procurator, great-grandson of Herod the Great, still wearing the superficial family crown, King Agrippa II. So Paul was about to be shipped off to Rome. So this, all, uh, this was a way to make public example of him. Agrippa wanted to pretend like his opinion mattered, so he called for a big public hearing where he had the opportunity to question Paul alongside Festus, even though the sentence was already made. Agrippa wanted a chance to publicly humiliate Paul. But deep down, there's something bigger at play in the hearts of these men. Deep down, it was more than just about publicly shaming the preacher. Deep down, both Agrippa and Festus really wanted to know more about Jesus of Nazareth. Dead for 25 years, but he seemed more alive than ever. And they couldn't shake it. Now, we don't know exactly when Luke got to Caesarea. We, don't, we know that he was on the ship back to Rome. But the details in chapter 26 seem like they had to be from an eyewitness account. Maybe he slipped in just in time to hear Paul give his defense. But I know this. I think what he heard come from Paul's mouth in this debate, in this exchange, had to influence what he would do with all the information he obtained over the last three years. So Agrippa establishes the debate rules. He gives Paul permission to speak for himself. And Paul's response, it's so powerful, as he confronts a real fear and insecurity had by everyone that was living in the first century. They all knew Jesus of Nazareth was a real man. Many had dealt with him personally, but most everyone in this part of the world knew someone that knew him. The question was never... 
Was he a real person? People in our world today, they have to wrestle with, you know, was Jesus even real? Is he just a fabrication of, of, of Christian, you know, uh, uh, writings? Let me just say this to anyone uh, that may be a skeptic. The question was never, was Jesus real? Did he actually live? In the first century, those who knew about him, those who did not believe in him, but still knew very much that he was a real man, and they were observing his real following, their questions were, who was Jesus? Was He really who He claimed to be? Who people still claim Him to be? Agrippa came from a long line of people who had encounters with Jesus and His followers. You'll remember Agrippa's great-grandfather was Herod the Great. Herod the Great had passed down whispers of wise men from Orient afar seeking a newborn king. Herod Antipas had written about how he admired and envied Jesus' ability to work wonders and do miracles. Herod Agrippa I witnessed the rise of Christianity and worked with the Apostle Paul before he was a Christian to hunt down and kill the Christians. But when Paul resigned from his post... Paul became enemy number one. And Agrippa tried to make a statement by killing James, the brother of John, and putting Peter in prison. Of course, Peter was broken out of jail by an angel, and Agrippa reportedly gloated over James' dead body, only to be struck dead and eaten by worms in front of thousands of eyewitnesses. Festus could read the procurator journals left before him at, at just how rattled Pilate had been by the conversations with Jesus. Pilate wasn't the same after he dealt with Jesus. Rome finally deemed him unfit for office, exiled him to Vienna where he committed suicide. History books would attest that Pilate never got over his conversations with Jesus. When Jesus began talking about how he wasn't afraid of dying, how he wasn't afraid of what Pilate or his people could do to him. Pilate heard the statements from Jesus, and he was afraid. He was amazed at this man who was staring death in the face and wasn't at all afraid. Like the city over which he ruled, Pilate was forever haunted by Jesus. Agrippa II and Festus felt this same way, this presence over them. They play it off as if they didn't care, but they did care so much. Like many in the first century, they couldn't get away from the ghost of Jesus. His spirit was everywhere. It was eerie. It was creepy. It was almost real to them. Here's what I want you to be clued into in case you haven't ever thought about this. Everyone in the first century was asking, what do we do with Jesus of Nazareth? Because he was a real man, and thousands upon ten thousands of people are still following him. We can't see him, but we feel him. And it's haunting. We don't believe in him. We don't want anything to do with him. But we can't get rid of him or his church. And all that we could hunt it down and stamp it out. And we're trying, but it's just not working. You can open up several history books from the first century that are considered credible and reputable by all. And you'll find people wrestling with the person of Jesus and even non-believers admiring the man, giving credit to things that he said and things that he did. A Jewish historian who never believed Jesus was the Savior of the world wrote this, 
About this man there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. Now, Josephus is not saying that he believed he was his Messiah. He's just saying, hey, just based on the life that he lived and the miracles that he performed and the spirit that he continues to to deal with his people through, he's got to be something beyond this world. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified... Those who had come to love Him did not give up their affection for Him. On the third day He appeared restored to life and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. And, and, and Joseph is again, he's just saying, well, that, they believe He was the Christ. They believe He rose again. But what I am convinced, what I, what I believe is that this movement is not dying and it should have died a long time ago. What do we do with that? And even more skeptical, Greek philosopher, columnist, Lucian wrote this. The Christians worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account or for that reason. It was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all family. From the moment that they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. And this guy, he was just, I, I can't understand why are these people still following this man named Jesus? We know that he lived. We know that he died. But they know something that we don't. Again, it wasn't a question of if Jesus had lived. But could he actually still be alive? That's what they were wrestling with. That's what everybody who encountered a Christian in the first century wrestled with. I say all this before we read Paul's opening statement because the people in this chapter are so compelling. Festus and Agrippa both wanting to know more. Luke having just learned more and beginning to process all of it. And Paul, who makes one of the most powerful and passionate defenses of Christianity you'll ever read. Back up with me and look at Acts 26, the beginning, and soak all of this in. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself because you concern, before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They, know. they knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictness of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise are twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day, hope to obtain for the hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Here's what Paul's saying. Hey, we have spent thousands of years waiting for hope to become a reality. And they're accusing me because I believe we no longer have to hope for a Savior. We just need to believe in the Savior because He's come. He says, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Agrippa, Paul tells Agrippa, our faith, our, our, really every religion is all about hope. We hope God will do what we, we've heard that He has done before. The Jews never believed that they were saved by keeping the law. They always believed that God would one day show up Himself and do something that would win over everyone. And Paul goes on to say, The reason Christianity has persuaded him 
hoping for was replaced with trusting in. That no longer did he have to hope for things to get better or hope for a Savior to come, but the Savior had come. A solution had been given. So it was no longer about hoping for a Savior. It was about trusting in a Savior. Because the very thing that they were hoping for came in Jesus and he could be trusted for it and so much more. And what made him stand out as the Messiah is that he did one thing for all people. He died as the final and ultimate sacrifice, forever removing the need of the whole religious system. Once and for all, Jesus died on the cross. Hebrews 10 tells us, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, as in a single sacrifice for all sins and for all sinners. That includes us. And unlike any sacrifice before Him or since, He rose back to life and gives all life through His resurrection. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now listen to Paul rationalize this in verses 9 through 18. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This, is all, that, that, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So Paul was completely against the church. While, th- while thus occupied, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. And at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven and brighter than the sun shining around me. And those who journeyed with me, and when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That you're not persecuting an it. You're persecuting a movement that is my own. Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? So I said, well, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both to the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me." I think Paul is trying to tell Agrippa, do you think I possibly ended up here on my own because I set out to be here? Of course not. I was blinded by Satan's power. I was in his grasp. I was hell-bent on destroying anything that opposed the religion I was born into. I was stubborn and hard-headed, yet the power greater than myself brought me to my knees on my face, and I was overwhelmed, and my world was overcame, and I became a Christian. He says in verse 19, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem throughout all the region of Judea, then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do the works befitting repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. 
Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. That Christ would suffer, that He would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul tells them, do you think Judaism has been turned inside out on its own? Do you think the world has turned upside down on my account? Do you think Christians are going to give their lives for the next 250 years because the Apostle Paul was just that good of a salesman? No. Jews are believing. Pagans are believing because the gospel is that powerful. People will give up their lives because Jesus is that worthy. Of course, they go on to say, you are crazy, Paul. But Paul looks at Agrippa and he says, I know I know that you believe. I know that these things have not left your minds because these things have not happened in a corner. And there in the audience sat Luke. And he was more convinced now than ever that this isn't just a story with the power for the current generation. I think it was then and there he realized if all of this could be compiled and ordered and recorded, this story would change the lives of generations to come. The Spirit of Jesus that was present in that first century, that was present within the, when the story was told to him, that same Spirit would always be present. And if his story could be preserved to be presented to future generations... I mean, if only, imagine what it could do. Because if someone like King Agrippa could almost be persuaded with one sermon, this good news had no limits in what it could do and who it could convince. After this, Luke boarded the ship with Paul, a mixture of slaves and prisoners and Greek and Roman commoners. Luke must have said to Paul, I've walked in his shoes over the last three years. Mary shared things with me that even Peter had never heard before. I've talked to shepherds and tax collectors and bankers and soldiers with eyewitnesses, and they were more than just witnesses. They were messengers. When they told their stories, their eyes lit up. My heart lit up. Truly what God had done had not been confined to a corner of the world. It was spreading all over and it would surely spill over to the future generations. I think Luke must have told Paul, there's been an awakening in my soul. There's a spirit that's all around us that comes to life when you preach. I feel him. He's moving in me to tell this story. It's like he's telling me to write this story down. Not just what, about Jesus, but about what we have been able to see and what Peter and John and, and what you have done. I believe Luke told Paul, we won't just almost persuade people. We can win the world for Jesus. I'm sure Paul wasn't surprised. He'd felt that same spirit at times writing letters to Galatia and Ephesus and Corinth. He had just sent one to Rome. Luke would go on to write a two-volume story for people just like Agrippa. People just like you. People just like us. Who knew that something was different about Jesus. They couldn't completely turn down the noise. Luke believed if you could just hear the whole story, you would be convinced that you would not be able to turn away from Jesus, the Nazarene. Agrippa's rejection did not discourage him, but it rather motivated him. He knew the power of God. And over the next six 
weeks, we're going to follow Luke as he takes us on a journey. As we begin to see through the eyes of those that originally heard and followed Jesus. What it was like to encounter the baby, the boy, the man, the teacher, the healer, the crucified, the resurrected, the king, Jesus, the Nazarene. In closing, I want to show you the first four verses of Luke's gospel, his prologue, that really is his acknowledgement section. These are perhaps the most important verses in the New Testament because Luke appeals to you, the reader, the inquiring seeker. Listen to how Luke begins the story. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, he writes to us from 2,000 years ago in a time when everyone had an opinion and wanted to tell their story about Jesus. He offers what he's pitching as the definitive answer. He assures us that he's covered his bases. He spent time eye to eye, face to face with those who knew Jesus best, those who could never forget him, those whose stories have the power and potential to carry his gospel to the farthest future. He says... Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word. He says, hey, these people have been entrusted with the gospel and its power as their stories proclaim who Jesus is and what He can do. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, the friend that sponsored his trip. He goes on, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have heard. He uncovered truths far too wonderful to conceal. He writes that the cause for writing this was one of, one of moral obligation, one of moral alt. This story was too powerful to be lost to history. He tells us that he writes to us so that we can know with full assurance, with confidence, that we, what we've heard about Jesus is absolutely true, and then some. And I thank Luke because of that moment in that, 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 that room that day, that forum, when Agrippa said, I've almost been persuaded. I think Luke would say, you won't be almost persuaded. You will be fully convinced. One preacher says, Luke believed that the proper telling of the story would certainly produce belief in its truth. Luke believed in the power of the gospel. Of course, Luke understood this, this was not merely a work of man. He knew that the same Spirit who was moving in the midst of the church, the same Spirit moved within him, was moving him to write this account, and would move when it was read. He writes the Holy Spirit who was present at Jesus' conception, was powerful in His ministry and through His message, and culminated in pouring Himself out to the whole church. Luke's stories of Jesus paints Him most of all as the Savior, the One who makes all people well. Luke the doctor, no doubt, had a special love for people. And like any good doctor, he took special interest in his patients knowing their names, knowing their stories, walking alongside them in their struggles, carrying their burdens when he himself could not heal them. One can see why Luke was called to share this side of Jesus with the world, with the ages, with us. Because Jesus truly was the great physician. A physician who meets and cares for our greatest needs, who does the greatest work, 
for our greatest ailment, a soul cursed with sin and destined for death. Luke gives special attention to all those that were ignored in the society that they were brought up in. He brings special attention to those that were poor, those that were left out. He brings attention to those that lived for themselves and at the end of their road had nothing to show but themselves. We hear Jesus call out to the rich and the powerful and call their attention to the kingdom of God and the glory that is found in going the greater good for the underprivileged. Luke's gospel alone shares with us many rich and able who lived for themselves and ended up with nothing to show for it. And he contrasts all that with one particular story that I want to show you before we leave. So this man hurried down and came and received him joyfully. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, I, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Luke tells so many stories of people just like Zacchaeus, who upon receiving Jesus was filled with joy. So much that they would go and willingly empty themselves to find even more joy. I have to imagine that day when Luke heard Paul on trial before Agrippa. He had to think, here's a man that had everything he ever could need. But when he met Jesus, he gave all that up. And has continued to pour himself out to share Jesus with the most. Paul was in chains, yet he was the most free man in that building that day. And he was full of so much joy. I don't think Luke ever got over that experience. And all of those that he interviewed and encountered that had met the same Jesus, they would concur. That meeting Jesus is just the beginning of joy. Knowing Jesus is a fountain of joy. I can't wait to see it all through their eyes. Meeting the same Jesus. Receiving the same joy. Luke's gospel uniquely gives us this little nugget. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God cares about that one. I I can't but think that as Luke heard that one say almost, almost, you persuade me. I can't help but think that Luke thought, I'm going to write all this down. And I'm going to present it as a two-volume epic. The story of Jesus and His church. And one day on some other side of the world, somebody will open up my story and they will be fully convinced that Jesus is the Savior that they're in need of. Jesus invites you to a better life, the best life even. Not based on numbers, results, or experiences, but based on Himself. When you can't feel anything good... You can know Jesus. When there's nothing good to look forward to, you can look to Jesus. When you can't count on anybody or anything, you can always count on Jesus. I pray today that none of you are just almost persuaded, partially convinced. Maybe you just attend just in case He's the one you've heard Him preach to be. Maybe you've never believed, but today you can at least agree that Paul believed, Luke believed, these many eyewitnesses believed. Even Herod, Pilate, Festus, and Agrippa, they all believed. They just weren't fully convinced. 
Maybe you felt like Jesus' ghost just won't leave you alone. Maybe His Spirit feels all too real to you. Maybe you confess today that you know, you even believe He's more. Why don't you open up today? Even in the slightest and say, I believe. There's no way around it. I can't deny it anymore. Jesus, I believe. I want you in my life. I don't know if I can accept everything yet, but I know this. I know that I can accept you. Because after, after all, you've already accepted me. And I, you know, I don't want to be like Agrippa. The only reason anybody ever know, knows about the guy is because he was almost persuaded. Almost. But you're more than almost. I believe somebody is fully convinced. Maybe you've never told anybody. And maybe this presence of God is not going to let you alone until you do. And you'll be glad you did. Because <laughs> He will live in you forever and ever. And the joy that He gives you, there's nothing greater. There's nothing sweeter. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your house today. God, if there's anybody in this house today that has never believed, they've almost been persuaded before, but today something's different. Something's real to them. And take away all the religious dressing and all the complicated stuff that they might not still have worked out. They believe that Jesus Christ is an unavoidable figure. They believe that He lived, that He died, and that many believe that He rose again. And they can feel His presence all around them. And He's knocked on their heart's door. He has came around them and been with them. And they have just ignored it and they've avoided it and they've tried to escape it. But today they're done running. And they don't want to be like Agrippa who was almost persuaded. They want to know. They want to be fully convinced. And they are. And they want to make it public today. God, maybe for the rest of us, we just have a hard time living our faith out. And we have questions and doubts and concerns. And this idea that we can be certainly and fully convinced and we can have the fullness of joy, that's attractive. That's appealing. And, and we want that. And maybe there's somebody that would like to come forward and say, hey, I, I want that joy that's found in living for Jesus. If He really is the resurrected Savior, wow, I want to know that and I want to live like that's true. God, maybe today is the beginning of that new life for somebody. For the rest of us, maybe it's just the continuation. An opportunity to be renewed and refreshed by the one they call Jesus the Nazarene. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.